Welcome back to another edition of the Wide Ride Podcast. I'm your host, Manny Navarro, Miami Hurricanes beat writer for The Athletic, joined again by Carlos Ledo of the MIA All Day Podcast. It is Wednesday, January 12th, around 5.30 p.m. Mario Cristobal has yet to hire an offensive or defensive coordinator, and so, of course, Twitter is going to panic and go crazy. But, Carlos, I want to start with this story. It's a story that I wrote on Monday related to Alex Mirabal the new offensive line coach. And of course I led with a quote that I guess has started a firestorm uh, with the Dan Lebetard show, but essentially quoting Joaquin Gonzalez saying you wanted to punch Dan Lebetard and Beepo, the character uh, played by Billy Gill on Lebetard show, the over the top Cuban Canes fan that Joaquin wanted to punch both of them in the mouth because of the disrespect that he felt they gave new uh, offensive line coach, Alex Mirabal uh, in an interview with Mario Cristobal last week. So, uh, I want to start there as as somebody who enjoys radio, enjoys fun. Uh, what did you think of that whole scenario? Well, first of all, there is only one true over the top Cuban Canes fan, and that's Raul from Hialeah. And I think everybody that listens to the show would agree with that. We think people is a low rent, uh, poor man's version of Raul from Hialeah, because first of all, he doesn't even speak that much Spanglish and he's just screaming in a high pitched voice. It sounds more like Pipito because he's his nuts haven't dropped yet because his voice is so high <laughs> no. as opposed to people. So that's just my opinion. I don't know. As far as punching him in the mouth, I mean, Joaquin, I don't think you needed this opportunity to do so. Feel free at any point. I mean, I, I'm just kidding, of course. Levitard, I'd enjoy his show. People, I am being serious about it. Not that great. Anyway, um, it, it's funny that you would start 22 off uh, by dropping like firebombing the Levitard show and starting this controversy, just straight Molotov cocktailing people off the start after having all this time off, you would think you'd come back more relaxed and you've come back like Rambo popping out of the water with the M60 just gunning people down. Hey, I, I'm just a writer. I'm just a journalist. I'm just a reporter. And to be honest with you, with you when I called Joaquin, it was only to talk about Alex Mirabon. He actually brought up the Lebetard interview. I didn't. Uh, he said. OK, that- so that that settles a controversy because Dan was saying. Now, what kind of shit is this from a guy that's been reporting for over 20 years to plant this seed? Where did this come from? So it came from Joaquin, not you. Correct. I, I had seen the interview, but I wasn't offended by it because I understand people is, uh, you know, it's a character. It's a guy that Billy Gill plays, um, you know, even though uh, they, they say on the air that, I, that that's not true, that, they, you know, people is a real person. Um, but yeah, because people doesn't even disguise its voice. It's just Billy Gill yelling. Right. <laughs> Well, however he wants to play it, I know the they've got a lot more fans than you and I do, and and their show is a hundred thousand more times popular than our show. We're just a bunch of guys uh, that follow in Dan Lebetard's footsteps. I mean, that's the way I was at the Miami Herald. Dan uh, and I, the closest we ever came to being friends, really, was on the basketball court. We used to have these three on three tournaments that I would organize, the Herald Cup, where me and a bunch of sports writers and editors. Um, when I was a clerk, when I was much thinner and much younger, much better looking, we would play these these games. I, we organized them uh, at the University of Miami inside the uh, the Hecht Athletic Center over there where, they, you know, where they had their their indoor basketball courts. 
And we, there were great games, a lot of fouls, a lot of bad basketball. But, you know, Dan and I were friends. I got invited to his uh, party a couple of years ago when they were first leaving ESPN. They, they kind of had a, a Levitard show event. I got invited to that. He's been very nice to me over the years. But this this story was not my fault. I mean, ultimately, uh, Beepo is the one responsible for this. He attacked Mario Cristobal. He's the one who came out and uh, was was questioning the Alex Mirabal hire. And frankly, Joaquin has every right to be upset, right? I mean, if, it, if he doesn't like the fact that they're attacking his offensive line coach from Miami <laughs> Columbus, he's allowed to defend them. I mean, it wasn't honestly an attack. It was just people trying to be funny, making fun of Mirabal's height. But, you know, if I am, let's say if I ever played a character that was an over-the-top Cuban Hurricanes fan, I would not start off my relationship with the new head football coach by making fun of his best friend uh, and, and the offensive the new offensive line coach of the University of Miami. That's just me. I mean, if I would ever play a character like that, I wouldn't go that route. Right. Well, you, you just don't get the show, Carlos. That's what they would tell you. I don't. You don't, I don't, I don't you get don't the show. Get the show. Um, anyway, I'm, was- I'm too analytical, which is why I, I crapped all over Gilbert Frierson's, uh, that <laughs> Gilbert Frierson tweet yesterday. I'm sorry. Right. Gilbert Frierson trying to announce that he's coming back for next year. All of these guys trying to have their moment like it's it's a big deal that they're all coming back. And and of course, I said he was seventh on the team in tackles, uh, played a lot, even though he only started three games. And you came back with yes, but it was also his worst year analytically. Well, well, first of all, let's 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 quote the tweet correctly. I said he had a down year. He disappointed this year needs to bounce back. Now, what you said is absolutely true. But uh, and I also didn't mention that he was fifth on the team or third in the team and missed tackles. But whatever. That's not the point. Um, you know, <laughs> glad to have him back. Hopefully he bounces back this year and starts at the striker role. Yes, I- I'm all for Gilbert Frierson having a good year. Gilbert and I had a good conversation. I, you know, the only time you can really talk to these kids is when they're doing their NIL stuff. You can't. Otherwise, it's a, it's a group interview that I don't enjoy. I hate being part of group interviews. It's just I- I'd rather talk to these guys one on one and have an opportunity to just have a conversation. But. Again, that's that's another conversation for another day. Um, but, you know, he's one of these guys who announced he's coming back. Zion Nelson is coming back. Tyreek Stevenson is coming back. Zion and Tyreek, I- I'm putting together a top 30 list for one of my next stories here on, at The Athletic. And um, I would rank Zion and Tyreek probably second and third on the team as far as most important players coming back next year. Yeah, I might, uh, I might do that as well. Uh, I, w- I would agree with you. And I think Frierson on the defense is going to be one of the most important players. Honestly, Gilbert, the last two years, not this past season, but the previous two years, was one of the more consistent players on the team. And when he's playing well at that striker position, the defense looks totally different because now you got a guy that can not only cover receivers in the slot, uh, but also help in the box against a run game. And if he's tackling well and he's playing well, that helps shore up the defense because now you're not having to get the safeties involved in the run game. And you're also shoring up the pass game against the slot receivers, which at times killed Miami. Nessa Silvera is not coming back. He's one of the guys who announced he's entering the transfer portal. Actually, the first one, I think, since the end of the season. Um, Nesta gave four years to Miami, uh, was, I think, all-conference honorable mention two years ago because I don't think he made it this past season. Anyway, started 20 games, came in as a four-star recruit, one of the best defensive tackles uh, in the country in the high school uh, class. I don't know if he was top five at his position. He might have been. Um, yeah, I you, think so. What, what do you say about Ness's career at Miami and his decision to leave? I, I, I think it has to do with the fact that Miami may play more two-gap in whatever defensive scheme that they're going to run here next year. 
Yeah, I mean, it's. I think his career ended with a thud. I mean, I, to me, I view Nessa's uh, career here at UM as sort of a roller coaster. He would give you some amazing effort on a given series, and you'd say, wow, this guy can be a dominant defensive tackle and then disappear. Then at times he built up to being able to play really hard and really well for one quarter of a game. And then again, he'd be inconsistent. So it's his inconsistency to me was what was most disappointing. I think he had all the tools to be a Gerald Willis type defensive tackle, but he never evolved into that. He was more uh, missing than he was impactful in games. When you saw him, when he was impactful, he was impactful in a big way. And you could see him make his presence felt. Um, but when he wasn't on a regular basis, he just got lost in the watch. And that's not what you needed a defensive tackle spot. And I think you're right. I don't think the system's going to fit him moving forward. Um, it could have. I think he's athletic and strong enough that if he had worked at it and been more consistent, that he might have fit in. But I think he just wants to go somewhere else where he doesn't have to share snaps with Leonard Taylor, with Jared Harrison Hunt, and see somebody else now with these transfers coming in, uh, like Lichtenstein, and also see Jordan Miller possibly get some more run and lose snaps. I think what he's focusing in on is getting as many snaps as possible to be able to get his draft stock up and make more money down the road. Yeah, I have no problem with him leaving. He, uh, you know, he, he gave Miami four years. I mean, this is this is why you you do this, right? You sign up, you play, you give what you can, and then you transfer out. I, I there are a lot of other kids who gave up early, ran away from competition. I don't think Nessa is running away from competition per se. I just think he's thinking about his draft status and where he's going to be able yeah. to help himself. So I agree with you a hundred percent on that. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about offensive and defensive coordinators, etc. The Cyrus Moss pickup. On Saturday, we'll get to all that, but I want to tease an interview later in this podcast with Andrew Nemec. He's a recruiting reporter for the Oregonian, host of uh, a show out there in Oregon. Um, Andrew covers both Oregon and Oregon State recruiting, and he does a phenomenal job. And I reported about a 40, maybe a little less than 40 minute segment with him earlier today, talking a lot about the four coaches or the, the, the three assistants. Uh, and the one strength coach, Aaron, Fo Aaron Feld, who, you know, Andy Staples and I in the previous episode here of Wide Right last week, Andy was great. I, I thought we, you know, he did a great job sort of talking about Aaron. Yeah, was done, awesome. done a workout with him and the whole thing. But I wanted to get more information on these assistants, right? Because I'm not familiar with, with BMAC, Brian McClendon, the receivers coach. Obviously, Mirabal, I know for years. He's local. Um, and then Joe Salavea, the defensive line coach. I wanted to get Andrew on to sort of talk about them as recruiting and how they worked and organized as a staff at Oregon under Mario. Their success stories, obviously, Panay Sewell was a, was a big one for them early on, getting him, you know, the seventh overall pick in the draft. And then, uh, obviously, Kayvon Thibodeau, who might be the number one overall yep. pick in this draft, a defensive end edge rusher. Andrew was excellent. He 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 knew these guys. Every every move that they made, I mean, the interview was phenomenal. And I really, for, for those of you who want to get to know these new Miami assistants that Mario brought with him, I, that's what I aim to do in this in today's episode. But I also wanted to have Carlos on here to talk a little bit about, obviously, what's going on. But stick around for the Andrew Nimick interview because it's good, really good details. Salavea, from my understanding, and, and this was kind of surprising to me, I guess he wasn't a very good recruiter out there based on whatever analytic system that they used. And Andrew talks about it, but he said that Salavea's recruiting classes, as far as the defensive line position, weren't great. Meanwhile, obviously, Mario was killing it on the offensive line. And then BMAC is the special, the quote-unquote special star right. recruiter, a guy who, who finally brought some receivers to Oregon. So interesting conversation. I, Andrew had nothing bad to say about Salavea as a coach. He thinks he's a great position coach. But again, every coach has their strengths and weaknesses, Carlos, right? Some guys 
Uh, they do a great yeah. job and uh, recruiting and, and they're not as good developing talent. And then the other way is sometimes the other way around. And then sometimes you get the great coach who does it all. One thing is for sure. Mario went out there never having really been out on the West coast and he won over coaches in Oregon. Like as Andrew explains, uh, I mean, there were coaches in Oregon that hated the ducks because they weren't recruiting their players. Well, Oregon still didn't get a bunch of, you know, local players in their recruiting classes, but Mario still built great relationships with them. And I think that's the kind of stuff that, you know, yes, he's been away on the West coast for a few years, but now coming back to the state of Florida, I mean, I'm going to do some more recruiting confidentials. I'm going to do all kinds of stuff in, in the weeks and months ahead, but I mean, that's where I think Mario's going to make the biggest difference. I think while Manny Diaz had good relationships with some coaches and programs throughout the state, I think I think Mario, just who he is as a recruiter, how much energy he puts into it, I think he's going to do a great job statewide. Yeah, and I mean, first, let me start off by saying, now that you've mentioned this great interview, I totally understand if people are going to fast forward through my parts to get to that good <laughs> stuff, because quite honestly, <laughs> I'm sitting here and doing this doing this with you now. And I want to fast forward myself to go listen to that. Um, but yeah, you're right. I think the, the important thing about putting together a staff, and I think Mario's done a great job of that, is balancing the ability to recruit with player development and, and coaching and teaching. So you're always going to have guys on a staff who are better recruiters than others and better teachers than others. If you can create a good balance of both, um, because it's, it's very hard, as you know, to find coaches that are great at doing both. Right. Um, and it's very rare to find a head coach like Mario that does both well. Like he's into recruiting. Not a lot of head coaches want to put, you know, roll their sleeves up and dig deep and get into the recruiting and get into the nitty gritty of it. He loves that stuff, but he's also a very good technical coach. I mean, you can talk to, you've talked to Joaquin. He, he's said that he's made probably the biggest impact on him from a technical standpoint as an offensive lineman in his career. Um, and he's known as an X's and O's guys that really understands football aside from the recruiting piece. But his ability to be able to weave together staffs that work well together and balance each other out where one is stronger in recruiting, the other is stronger at teaching to be able to get the best out of his staff and maximize the talent on the team is incredible. And, and I think you saw that dating back to FIU, the way he put together those staffs. He had a bunch of guys that were, you know, first time college coaches, um, had never recruited before, but he knew were good teachers in Mirabal, Frank Ponce. Um, he got James Coley early. Then you had other guys that had done it before that were good recruiters that just needed their shot as coordinators, like a Todd Orlando, Jeff Collins, these kinds of guys, Scott Satterfield, that he saw could make an impact on his program. And not only that, but also make an impact on him and teach him the game on how to do things as a head coach at the college level. I think the best thing about Mario so far is, aside from his work ethic that we've seen, the guy's been busting his ass day in and day out since he got the job, is his ability to be patient, make the right decisions at the right time, and to learn. I think he takes in a lot of stuff uh, from other coaches. When he's interviewing, he takes st stuff from high school coaches when he's recruiting. And I think the key that you hit there previously is the relationships. It doesn't matter if you're going into a school and recruiting a guy one year and then never coming back. What matters is if you build a relationship when you don't want a kid, that's when it matters. Because at the end of the day, one day down the road, that school might have a kid that you want. And because you shun them and you decided never to go there because they never had any talented players, that one time you decide you want somebody, they're going to close the door on you and tell you, no, he's going somewhere else. We're not letting you in. But it's about relationships. And at the same time, those coaches will give Mario a lead on another kid. Or if they go to another school and you burnt that bridge early on, and now he's at a place that's loaded with talent, what are you going to do then? 
you already burnt that bridge. You already pissed that coach off. He's not going to send guys to you. And I think that's important. And I think that's where more Manny failed is he didn't build the relationships, enough relationships the way he should have. Um, and I think the other thing that Mario is that people appreciate is authentic. There's no gimmicky bullshit with him. It's this is the way it is. I'm going to be very honest with you. This is what I want to do. This is our vision for the program and our vision for this individual player. Or he tells you, listen, you don't have guys that we want right now because this is what we're looking for. And you just don't have guys that fit that mold. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to help you out if you need help. If you want to call me, you want to get on the, want me to get on the board and show you some stuff or give you some tips. You want to come by watch practice? No problem. And I think that's going to work out big time in the long in the long run. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Yep, uh, I agree. Um, you know, I, I want to talk a little bit of the coordinator front and then get into some some recruiting um, quick information. It's not going to be in-depth, but um, from the coordinator, I wrote a story Saturday for The Athletic when when Moss uh, committed, uh, Cyrus Moss, a defensive end from Las Vegas, Bishop Gorman, mentioning um, both uh, offensive and defensive coordinators. I still believe Kendall Bryles is the number one target. Of course, he's with Arkansas. Ken Dorsey, I, I put in print finally. Um, as a guy who I think is definitely in the, in contention. Another one I would say is probably Frank Ponce from Appalachian state. Um, I, I've got, I got to haven't spoken to Frank about the job specifically, but I know, um, uh, you know, he's another guy that's quality. I think, I think he's respected enough in the game where I think he's an, a viable name out there. Um, and then, um, defensively, I wrote Clint hurt, of course, former hurricane. And a lot of people were like, well, how could Clint hurt come back? He had his whole, you know, Nevin Shapiro scandal. His name was on a check, etc. Like he's been in the NFL for a long time now. He's good friends with Mario. Um, I think all that stuff is ancient history at this point. Um, and then um, who else did I mention? For oh, Glenn Schumann, of course, was the first name. You know, him and him and Bryles were the first two names I put out in in early December. As soon as Mario got hired, um, we talked about it here on the podcast with Bruce Feldman. Um, and then the other one, of course, is Houston's um, Doug Belk, who worked with Mario at Alabama. He was a uh, grad assistant coaching cornerbacks for three years at Alabama under Nick Saban. And then he went to West Virginia before going to Houston. He was, this was his first year at Houston uh, as the defensive coordinator. Um, so, you know, those are some of the names. I know people are saying, hey, you don't, you don't throw any of the information out. You don't talk about these guys enough. Look, I, I don't because I feel like until it happens or until it's getting close to happening, it's just hearsay. And, and you hear yeah. hundreds of names all the time. But I, I look I, again, as I said from the very beginning, I think they're going to get a quality. They're going to get quality coordinators and coaches on both sides. They're spending a lot of money, so I'm not worried about it from a wow. Should we be worried about this perspective? And, um, you know, obviously, Belk is a young coach. He's a young guy up and coming. He's only been at this since 2011. Um, obviously the other report that was out there this week was about, uh, Kevin Smith becoming Miami's running backs coach. He, he put something on Twitter, basically saying goodbye to Ole Miss hasn't still been announced by Miami. And, you know, we'll see what happens here in the coming days, but, but anyway, that's, what's been going on on the coaching front, um, and the coordinator search, et cetera. Um, from a recruiting perspective this week, they're finally hosting, um, transfers and uh, you know th this week they had two guys come in midweek 
Uh, one of them was Antonio Moultrie, a kid out of the Pensacola area who played for UAB. He's a defensive end, about 6'5", uh, 270 pounds. Um, it's funny. I talked to his high school coach last night uh, who, coached, who coached him at West Florida Tech, and he was telling me how this kid came in the high school, 5'10", 150 pounds. And by the time he left, he was 6'5", 290. And, and you know, no two stars. Crazy. He was ranked like number 3,682 because <laughs> out in the Pensacola area, nobody sees, um, you know, the, the, the guys out there really cares. And I think his only offer coming out of high school was like Southern Miss or something like that. And then he ends up going to Juco and then ends up at UAB. He's been a, basically a starter the last two years, but he's a good player. He was on campus along with DJ James, of course. Uh, the the cornerback who played at Oregon and had been a starter at Oregon the, la- uh, the last year and a half because um, they only played five games in 2020. So I call it a half season. Um, but anyway, those two guys are on campus. We'll see if one of them commits. I think of the two, the one more, more likely is Moultrie. Um, and then this weekend, there's going to be three uh, high school recruits who end up coming down here. One of them, Jaleel Florence, a cornerback out of San Diego, went to the same high school as Keyshawn Smith. Um he announced on Twitter earlier today that he will not be coming uh, or, or making trips uh, in January. Didn't didn't disclose the reason, but he was supposed to be coming down here along with um, Dave Ayuli, a 6'5", 315-pound offensive lineman from Puyallup, Washington. Uh, he was a former Oregon commitment as well. And then Grayson Holden, a 6'3", 270-pound edge rusher, also from San Diego. He's supposed to be coming down along with uh, – 6'6", 285-pound offensive tackle Matthew McCoy out of St. Augustine Creekside. I know Miami really likes the McCoy kid. He's really athletic um, offensive lineman, and that's kind of what I think Alex Mirabal is looking for. If you go back and you read my story, you'll see exactly what he talked about in terms of length and athleticism, how those are the number one traits that he looks for. But anyway, those are the guys that, that are sort of on campus this week looking at Miami. We'll see if any of them add their name to the commitment list. Carlos, any of those guys excite you? And I guess what was your sort of response to Moss, Cyrus Moss, joining the class uh, on Saturday at the All-American Bowl? I mean, first, let's, let's start off with the coordinator talk. I wanted to say something about sure. that. I think, um, to me, Glenn Schumann, probably at this point, I don't see him leaving Georgia. Like, I would love Glenn Schumann, based mm-hmm. on everything I've read about him, because they say he is sort of the guy that translates the defense for Georgia, because it's a very complicated defense, and he makes it simple for the players to understand uh, and be able to execute it. And I think it'd be very difficult to see him leave. I don't think Kirby Smart will let him go, especially after losing Dan Lanning now to Oregon as a head coach. Um, as far as uh, Clint Hurt, to me, that one makes less sense, not so much because of Shapiro stuff, but because he, he historically he's been a defensive line coach. And you already have Salavea here. So if he comes on as a DC, is he going to be a linebacker's coach now? And he's never coached that position before. So it's a little awkward. I don't know, unless you're going to go tackles and ends coach which I don't know if that would fit in the system necessarily. Um, Doug Belk, to me, is a, a rising star. I think that guy's a really good coach. He's done a really good job at Houston. He doesn't have that much experience. But what he has done, he's done very well. And I think that would be a great hire for the Hurricanes if they don't get Glenn Schumann. Um, I think you're right as far as the offensive coordinator is concerned. I, I don't think Ken Dorsey is going to leave the NFL. I think somebody's going to give him a shot as an offensive coordinator this offseason in particular. Um, I think... Kendall Browles is probably the leading candidate just because of the hire of Kevin Smith or what looks to be like the hire of Kevin Smith because they work together at FAU. But if it's not, I do think Frank Ponce is going to be the guy if it's not Kendall Browles, just because of the familiarity with Mario. Mario knows him. He trusts him. But on top of that, 
Frank put up a hell of an offense this year at, at App State, and he's done a great job since he's been co-OCing uh, or being the OC. So I think that'd be a good fit down here if, if it doesn't work out with Browse. As far as the recruits are concerned, Cyrus Moss, to me, sort of fits that mold that you're looking for, which is high-end talent with length and athleticism, like Mario talked about, like you said in the article. That just doesn't go for the offensive line. That also goes for the defensive line, especially on the edge. You want long, werewolf-looking type guys that you can not only play on the edge and pass rush, but if you need to and you want to drop, play a drop zone or a zone, fire zone, you can put them in coverage in the flat and be able to be athletic enough to get guys and cover guys in space. Um, and I think Cyrus Moss fits that. And he's got the frame to build out his body, which I think is going to be fantastic when he finally fills out, which is right in that mold with Nigelie Kelly. If they're able to land Shamar Stewart along with uh, Moss and Nigelie Kelly, I think the edge rushers are going to be fantastic moving forward, which is, as we know, one of the biggest weaknesses this year for the Hurricanes. What I think about the uh, the current targets right now in the portal, to me, the one glaring need that has not been addressed is linebacker. And that concerns me because if you cannot go into this season, I do not believe, with the current talent that we have at linebacker, unless they see something um, that they feel they can develop on tape or in person that they've seen so far, I don't know what they're seeing because right now it doesn't look like it. I haven't seen it on tape for the last three years. I don't think any of those guys right now are high-level starters uh, that you could say that would compete uh, for a starting job at an SEC school. And ultimately, that's the goal here. It's not to be a starter at another ACC school. It's to be a starter at a high-level SEC program like a Texas A&M, a Georgia, an Alabama, and LSU. Those are the kinds of players you want down here. And I don't see that at the linebacker spot right now. And I think they need to address that prior to the season. I don't know if they're going to do it before spring ball. Maybe they do it after, but hopefully they get to it soon. Yeah, I would assume whoever, you know, ends up taking over here. I mean, linebacker is going to be obviously an important position, but I think Chase Smith's emergence towards the end of last year gives you some encouragement that, hey, this guy looks like he's got the raw materials. I also think if Keontra Smith is healthy, Maybe things are different for him. He got banged up early in the year. Uh, you know, we'll see. Corey Flagg, obviously, you know, he was solid. He wasn't spectacular. I think he was solid. There were games where he played really well, I thought, and, and just didn't, you know, produce huge numbers per se. Uh, and then there were games where he missed tackles and was out of position a foot, uh, a foot or two slow, right? Um, but obviously, linebacker is a huge position. But ultimately, I thought what lacked most um, at the end of last season was a pass rush. Um, yeah. And, and you look at the two guys that are coming back, Chance Williams um, and Jafari Harvey, and they, they got two and a half sacks each last year. Uh, you need more production from that position. And obviously getting Cyrus Moss, Nigel Lee Kelly, potentially a kid like this Antonio Moultrie, um, you know, adding a couple of veterans in there. I think eventually the position is going to be solid again. Um, you know, Moss And dropping not- a little tease here, dropping yeah. a little tease here. Uh, I'm going to be recording a podcast. I don't know if it's going to be tonight or tomorrow where I actually just a, what I call a quick game now, just a quick podcast on a thought that I had is comparing the offensive and defensive lines and linebackers of Georgia to what the Hurricanes currently have the roster in terms of their heights and weights and their composite rankings coming out of high school. Um, so we could see where the Hurricanes currently are and how far they have to go to be able to get to where Georgia is, where a national champion is. Because at the end of the day, what really makes a national champion is those offensive, defensive lines, and the linebackers. And you saw that with Georgia, where they were able to physically impose their will at the end of the game against Alabama. Excellent points. And I want you to send me all the information so I can I can sleepwalk through my next article because I'll just copy it all and just pretend that I No, absolutely. I'll just do that. You'll make it life easy for me. Um, I haven't given you a homework assignment in a while, so I'll, 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 I'll hook you up. Since the last time I gave you a homework assignment, you actually completed it. I was doing something really like brainless, which is like ranking the top 30 players at Miami with the freshmen that are coming in. I was going to do something really simple like that. 
Um, but this sounds much tougher. And I, I'll, I'll go ahead and let you take the lead on that. You can just send me the info now. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, Carlos, I appreciate it, man. Did we miss anything? I'm thinking anything else that we're missing. We talked Nesta. We talked about the, the guys coming in, the assistant coaches, the coordinators. I don't think we're missing uh, anything. Punching people and Lebertard in the face. We got right. to that. We got to um, that that little story. Um, no, in, in all seriousness, um, we'll, we'll, we'll the next episode. I mean, I am going to talk to Rudy Fernandez. We, he, you know, when he uh, was done sort of with his quote unquote athletic director duties, hiring Mario, getting that whole situation done. We agreed that at one point we we're going to bring him on um, to just talk about Kane's football, Kane's basketball, Kane's basketball team has been great. I know they lost last night at Florida state. I, yeah. I, but you know, 13 and four, um, five and one in the ACC hats off to Jim Laranega and the job he's done, you know, Cameron McGusty, Charlie Moore, um, Isaiah Wong, uh, the, the Miller kid, uh, they, they've got a good four players that can help them win a, a couple of tournament games. In my mind, I think this could be a potential sweet, sweet, sweet 16. Yeah. Game. They look like it to me. Yeah. Just because of how good they are at the guard play and the fact that those guys can win one-on-one matchups. I'm not going to sit here and talk a ton of basketball on this podcast. Cause I know you guys come here for the football, but, um, you know, I think I am. We can do it though, because we're versatile. We can do it. We can do it. Hey, I covered the Miami heat in the NBA for three years. I mean, come on, brother. I mean, uh, I got it in me. I mean, I covered major league baseball for seven. That's what, what's what we bring to the show. And you, Listen, my I friend, said, I said, I sit on my ass as much as I can and watch as much TV as possible. That's my, those are my credentials. Yeah. Well, that's what I try to do now at age 43. I'm tired of working hard. I did that uh, for 25 years <laughs> from, from age 17. I want the grind. I want to, I want to be able to sit back and enjoy the rewards of this thing. Um, but no, um, thank you, Carlos, for coming on. Make sure you check out the MIA All Day podcast. Make sure to hit Carlos up on Twitter. I know you guys, you, you're bringing more fans to the show now than I am. Everybody thinks I suck and I'm and I'm lazy, which is right. They're absolutely correct on all those fronts, especially Kelvin. Kelvin can't wait to get rid of me. I told him that if, that if the athletic fires me, I'm going to go to his retirement home, the uh, Three Rings uh, Canes retirement home, and make sure that they kick him out of there. Which is which is amazing that that they allow him to actually sit by the pool and when and at Century Village because I, they're usually very scared that people that old if they fall into the pool won't be able to get themselves out. So I mean that's kudos to Kelvin for being a high functioning senior and uh, getting discounts. You know what? At the end of the day, maybe we should get him back on the pod to give him something to do so he doesn't go see now. I think that's that's important. They got bad internet at that retirement home. I got to reach yeah. out to the guy who pushes him around on the wheelchair uh, to see what I can you know see what ways we can sort of harass uh, Kelvin and terrorize him a little bit. If any of you listeners out there have any good ideas, make sure to hit me up on Twitter. Um, see if we can get a hold of this uh, guy who, who wheels Kelvin around at the retirement home. Uh, Carlos, thanks, brother. Uh, make sure you stick around. Andrew Nemec from the Oregonian is next. So obviously this is a very busy time for uh, the Miami Hurricanes uh, as far as trying to finish up its recruiting class. Mario Cristobal discussed that he wanted to get to uh, between 16 to 20 signees in this uh, cycle. And right now Miami's sitting at uh, 10 high school commitments, one transfer. Um, they've got a couple of guys on the radar. And I thought, well, who's a good guy to talk to about all of this? Well, how about Andrew Nimick, of course, who covers uh, recruiting for the Oregonian. He's covered recruiting at Oregon uh, with, with the Oregon Ducks, as well as Oregon State, I believe. Right, Andrew? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Oregon, uh, Oregon State as well. And, and Oregon High School Athletics as well. 
So you're as plugged in, you're sort of our Andrew Ivins uh, or, or Gabby Urrutia from 247 Sports over here who, who cover recruiting solely and they, and they spend their whole lives in this area. So you're the guy in the Pacific Northwest who does this. Very familiar, of course. I, I want to start with this. Um, you, you, Mar- we all know Mario Cristobal is a nut, right? When it comes to recruiting, his, his guys are so heavily in, invested in it. What, what would you describe the impact that he had in recruiting in Oregon over four years? I, I think it was program altering at a historic level. You're looking at an Oregon program that even in the Chip Kelly years, and I, I think Miami fans are familiar with Oregon's Chip Kelly era where they, for the first time, really became a national power back to back to back BCS uh, bowl games. It, they weren't recruiting at a very high level. They were a, a program that finished in that top 15, top 20 And Scott Frost, who was an offensive coordinator there for a while, obviously now the head coach at Nebraska, he famously said when he left, part of the reason I left Oregon is it's, it's really hard to recruit here. There's just, there's not a ton of high school talent in Oregon. You're always competing against USC, Stanford, UCLA for California talent. And it's, it's just really hard. And Mario Cristobal kind of said, eh. Not so much. You know, it's since he's been here prior prior to his arrival, Oregon had never finished with the number one recruiting class in the Pac-12. They did it every year that he was the head coach of the program while he was still here. They were going to do it for a fourth year this year until he left and they had a program record 16D commitments. But he was going to, after the program had never done it before, have the top class in the Pac-12 four years in a row. And what was so impressive about that, setting aside, obviously, you're in unforeseen or you know never before seen heights, is he proved that whatever your strength of your region is, and the West Coast is known for receivers, it's known for corners. It's known for running backs and quarterbacks. We've seen that in the national title game with Bryce Young, DJ Uyunglele at Clemson. We've seen that California produces those guys. Keely Ringo out of Georgia is a, is a West Coast guy. We've seen that the West Coast produces those guys. What Mario did was come in and go, I have expertise in the South, and I have a reputation, a proven reputation as a, as a line guy. And that even seemed to carry over to some extent with some D linemen. And suddenly this Oregon program that had always recruited solidly and then very well at the skill positions recruited at an A plus level at every position. It didn't matter. There, you know, no track record of great wide receivers. No problem. Here's a couple of five-star wide receivers. It was unbelievable to watch and, and not just even from the standpoint, again, of finishing first, but the way he finished first. Last year, there were just no good linemen on the West Coast. The number three offensive tackle in the West region probably would have been something like 30th in the South. Oregon got four of the top five O-linemen in the Pac-12, five of the top six, And at the offensive tackle position, they got two of the top 10 offensive tackles in America. The next best two offensive tackles in the whole conference were like 36th and 45th. That's how big a gap he was recruiting compared to the rest of the Pac-12. Now, the Pac-12's not the ACC or the SEC as a recruiting power, but still, he shouldn't have been lapping the field like he was. It really just speaks to how incredible a job he did. And he does it personally. He does a lot of that legwork. So Miami's getting an absolute ace recruiter that 
Now, Oregon, you look at the staff they just assembled. They went and got recruiters. They've fallen in love with this approach. Like, hey, let's try to emulate this. We're losing Mario Cristobal. There's probably no other head coach in America or very few that can recruit at the level he can. But maybe if we get a Dan Landing and then a bunch of really good assistant recruiters, we could almost stay to where Mario was in terms of impact. And, and you look at the hiring process for Oregon – Position by position coach, they went after the best recruiter they could get. And that's directly because of the way Oregon fans and the way the Oregon program fell in love with Mario Cristobal's results on the recruiting trail. Two Pac-12 championships, played in the uh, third this year, and they lost. Uh, got beat by a, a pretty good Utah team, I thought. Um, but the results paid off. I mean, it wasn't just recruiting good players. He was producing. I just wrote a big story on Alex Mirabal, the offensive line coach, one of the guys he brought in. Of course, there's also Joe Salavea. Um, Brian McClendon, who joined the staff, Aaron Feld, the strength coach. He's brought in guys from Oregon with him. Um, I'm curious. Penesu was obviously the, the best you know, player Oregon's produced, being the seventh overall pick, right? If we look at it from the NFL draft perspective. What do you remember about that recruitment and, and Mario's sort of involvement in that? And, and, and you know, because everybody's always going to remember the marquee players. Just curious. You covered that, I'm sure. What was that like? What did you see? Uh What's fun about Mario is when you when you go to an elite camp that's open to the public, he has a really hard time hiding his excitement and holding the cards back. So you're going to see really quickly like, oh, he really likes that recruit because he's going to be all over him. I mean, he's going to be talking to him. He's going to be talking to the parents. He's going to be having a good time with all of it. So it became very obvious very early that Mario Cristobal loves Penesu. He loves Penesul. He believes in this guy more than, than anybody in the country. And again, that's not from talking to him. He's not spilling the beans and, and violating any rules in terms of talking to me. You just tell by his body language. He's just fired, genuinely fired up about being around this kid. And then you talk to recruiting experts and they go, you know, he's a guard. He's probably a guard. He's a really good guard, right? but he's a guard. And so Panay, you know, and I, I got to know his dad and his dad's a phenomenal fiery guy. And obviously, you know, you produce four D1 football players as sons. You've got some fire in you. And he's like, I just don't get it. I don't get why people think he's a guard. He's not a guard. He's a tackle. Mario knows. You know, Mario believes. Mario knows. And so people think Panay Sewell, because he was a highly rated recruit, was this guy that everybody saw the vision. And that's not actually true. He was a good recruit and a top 60 recruit. But Mario was the guy who was like, you are a franchise left tackle. And that belief and that energy really came across throughout his recruitment. And then, you know, he did his, he did his press conference and people are, you know, when you announce the players and everybody's kind of ready to ask the question like, hey, Panay Sewell's phenomenal. Is he a guard or a tackle? And so he introduces him. And the first thing he says is, we got the best tackle in America. And you're like, oh, well, that answers that. So uh, that's the cool thing about Mario that I think with that, that recruitment in particular is people forget is everyone saw Panay as a guard. He's listed as a guard. And Mario saw what he could be at tackle, invested in that, and genuinely just showed that passion every step of the way. And that's part of the reason Noah Sewell, who's got a got potential to be an all-American linebacker at Oregon, is there. That family has complete faith in Mario and his vision for that family. And he sold it with his energy, uh, you know, genuine the genuine approach he took on the recruiting trail and, and the belief in Panay as a tackle, not a guard. <laughs> and 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 obviously Panay's the, the guy now who's in the NFL, but the next one's going to be Kayvon. And I'm curious that, you know, Kayvon Thibodeau, for, for those who didn't get the Kayvon reference, <laughs> but just what, what, what was, how did they do that? How did they pull that one off? 
Yeah, I mean, that was a long time recruitment. And and part of the reason, and I, and I thought this fourth year of Mario was his his worst recruiting year at Oregon. Now, part of that was the fall off late. And I'm not totally meaning the decommitments late. I, I mean, it started, there started to be some negative recruiting. Mario might leave. You know, we heard that weeks before he really left. Uh, but he also lost some key assistants along the way who were really connected in California. As good a recruiter as Mario is, and, and as good as I think he'll even do back home where he has all those connections, he had to develop some of those on the West Coast. And Keith Hayward was actually really instrumental, a defensive backs coach in that recruitment and and built that relationship up and and Oregon did a great job of of selling not only the program and not only again not necessarily a position that traditionally they've been great in but Mario got guys to believe you will start a tradition at this position Oregon not great not known for edge rushers you know there's no Von Miller here at this Oregon program they don't have that track record but he sold you can be the first you can set the stage you can set the tone uh, Kayvon himself during the national title game talked about the connections with Nike and how real that was that, that as he went through the process, he didn't just like, Oh, Hey, shake Phil Knight's hand. He got to know Phil Knight and thought that was really cool. But Oregon did a great job of, of selling him on. We're going to be the premier program in the PAC 12. We're going to start getting all the best players in California, which they did when Mario was there and, and Kayvon bought into that. And it did come down to Oregon and Alabama. And at the end of the day, Oregon just did a better job than Alabama of selling the vision near home, which I do think was a factor for Kayvon. I do think he wanted to stay on the West coast. Now I want to ask you about these assistants. Cause you mentioned, you know, these guys, Joe's a West coast guy, Joe Salovey, the defensive line coach. How is he as a recruiter? Um, how do people sort of react to him? Because, you know, Miami has recruited well nationally as far as um, finding guys from different places to come here and play on the defensive line in the past when they were great, right? They pull guys out of Texas, California, wherever it didn't matter. Um, I, I've heard along the lines that, you know, Joe's always been a West coast guy. So this is going to be new territory for him um, from, from, I guess, from that perspective, how do you sort of describe Joe Salve as a recruiter? Well, I, to be completely candid, I, you know, there are a lot of coaches that I wouldn't have been surprised if he'd have taken, and, and we'll probably get to Brian McClendon at some point, which is just a right. home run addition. Uh, there's a stat, and, and I used a, a math guy locally, Dave Bartu, College Football Matrix, does a ton of stuff for college football, but, but a lot of stuff on the West Coast. And he has a metric that looks at the average star rating of a program and then breaks it down by position. So, for example, if Duke were to have a five, and it's a five-year stat. So if Duke were to have a five-year run where they got five-star quarterbacks every year, that would, compared to the Duke average of whatever it would be, 3.2 stars per commit, would be elevated on the recruiting trail. That would give a higher score to that staff or that coach than if Alabama got five-star quarterbacks because they recruited a baseline of about a 4.4. So it's a complicated stat, but what it essentially says is if you're in a program that recruits at a two-star level and you're bringing in four-star talent, you're going to get more credit than a coach who recruits at a four-star program and brings in four-star prospects. The lowest rated positions, position groups in the entire Pac-12 for a five-year stretch, the bottom one was Washington State's D-line, where Salavea came from. The second one was Oregon's D-line the last two years that Salavea was at. 
there was a good five-year run at two different programs where not compared to, not because he was just at Washington State, but be, compared to what the rest of the program was doing, Salavea was the worst recruiter for his position of any coach in the Pac-12 for a five-year run. That's just the math. Now, we can talk about the development of his talent. I think, you know, that's been up and down. Some of the guys he's hit on, some of the guys he hasn't. Again, Kayvon Thibodeau was actually a Keith Hayward recruit. But that stat holds for Oregon, even if you give Salavea credit for Kayvon Thibodeau, which is really startling, frankly. It was an area that Oregon needed to address. Uh, some of that in terms of Oregon, there started to be buzz that like, hey, Salavea is kind of not getting it done as a recruiter. Some of that started to go away when Oregon was one of the finalists for JT Tuamalau, who was the number one recruit in the nation last year. And people thought, well, if they get JT, all of this goes away. Well, they didn't get JT, but because they were in the mix for him, people thought, well, he must have been doing a great job. In fact, uh, Salavea was actually a negative in that recruitment. That was They weren't totally connected to him. They didn't necessarily feel like he was a great fit. So the Salavea hire really surprises me. I think he's a nice man. I think he's a solid BB-plus developer of talent. As a recruiter, again, I the math bears out that there was a five-year run where he had two units, Washington State's D-line and Oregon's D-line, and they were the two worst units for recruiting in the entire conference. So I do think that's a little bit of a head-scratcher, to be honest. And, and I, frankly, before he got hired at Miami, I thought there was a good chance that Nevada was going to pass on him as well. I knew Oregon wasn't necessarily going to keep him. I thought it was possible that Ken Wilson, the linebacker coach who went to Nevada, might say, uh, let's go in a different direction. He, he needs to improve what he's done the last few years. Because even if you look at Oregon's board, they've offered 20, 25 of the top D linemen in the country. He's consistently getting 17th on the board, 20th on the board. They have not gotten one, two, three, four, five on the board, or even really been close for about four or five years. So it's an area of concern. Interesting, Andrew. I didn't know that. This is uh, very educational for me and, and for probably a lot of my listeners. We don't we hit on recruiting, but not nearly as much as guys like you. And as I mentioned, Gabby Urrutia and, and Andrew Ivins, where this is their specialty. So it's great insight what you're providing here. Um, Mirabal as a sidekick to, to, to Mario. I know he's developed guys that were walk-ons at Marshall into all-conference players. Um, and I know he, he's obviously done a decent job recruiting over the years, getting three and four star guys. Just curious, who is his best success story uh, at Oregon as far as in your mind when you look at who he recruited, who he developed? Well, I, I just think in general, he pairs so nicely with Mario. I think it's almost impossible to separate out and say like Mirabal mm -hmm. gets this guy, Mario gets this guy. They work in tandem really well. And mm -hmm. you think, OK, well, then recruiting success. Kelvin Banks was the number one offensive tackle in the country this recruiting cycle and was committed to Oregon. His biggest reason, the number one reason he chose Oregon had nothing to do with NIL, had nothing to do with the uniforms, or he said, I love that the position coach and the head coach are on the same page and the head coach is an O-line guy. And that kind of messaging is something that Oregon has done a phenomenal job of hammering home with offensive line recruits. And, and I, I know not everybody's super familiar with the West region. It doesn't produce a ton of great old linemen. It just doesn't. When Stanford had their great teams with Andrew Luck and Christian McCaffrey, a lot of their old linemen, they got the best guys in, in the West Coast, but then they also had to supplement from across the country to have those really dominant old lines. That's what Oregon's had to do. And the messaging consistently among those recruits has been, 
I love that my position coach is in lockstep with my head coach and that my head coach and my position coach are on the same page and both will develop me. And, and I think really you look at Oregon's O-line was nominated for the Joe Moore award given to, they were one of the finalists for the Joe Moore award given to the nation's top lineman a couple years ago. Everybody remembers Panay Sewell. And of course they deserve tremendous credit. That's their biggest victory, right? I mean, he, he, people consider him a, a, a franchise altering left tackle. So that's their biggest victory. The rest of that O-line wasn't very good in terms of NFL prospects. In fact, uh, CBS Sports did a mock draft at one point and had three of Oregon's O-linemen projected as first-round picks. And behind the scenes, the coaches of the program were like, hey, we love it for our guys, but like, these are maybe sixth and seventh rounders, but it was because they all developed so well and played so well in that system that it fooled a lot of people. Now, when it came to the actual draft, I think Shane Lemieux, who's bouncing around the league, was a fifth or sixth round pick. All the other guys were undrafted free agents. And they were the, they were the Joe Moore Award finalists. And everybody went, well, of course, I've got Panay Sewell and all these first rounders. And the reality was not only athletically did they not measure out at like a combine as first rounders, a lot of them weren't drafted, but Oregon scheme and Mario and, and Mirabal's being on the same page, put those guys in a great position to succeed. And, and it was one of the best O-lines in America. Yeah. And, and a guy like Ryan walk, uh, you know, I think he was unranked there out of, out of the state uh, walk on right at, at Oregon. He, I think he ended up making the uh, AP team first, first team, all, all pack 12 for the AP in 2020. And then uh, this year you had the former Juco guard, uh, TJ Bass, I guess who played left guard and left tackle that also got like first team pack 12. And, and these guys weren't necessarily much coming out of high school. Yeah. TJ Bass was one though, that, that, uh, I consider myself a little bit of a film buff with guys and, uh-huh. uh, for a little while there was a hint Oregon's got a secret weapon. Cause they were, they looked like they were, they had rolled over their O line. They were going to have new guys. And there was this hint that like, Hey, they've got a secret weapon in the program. And I was banging the table. It's TJ Bass. TJ Bass is going to be an all, an all conference guy. So they got a, a pretty solid statue of marble already chiseled out. They maybe had to do some refinement to make sure it was a work of art. But in my opinion, TJ Bass was a very good get, but, they deserve a ton of credit for finding him. It is not always easy to find interior offensive linemen at the junior college level. Again, especially when you're getting four and five star guys, there are a lot of programs that'll just poo poo that, you know, like we'll just go get a four and five star guy. We don't need some junior college kid that, that may or may not be good and only has two or three years of eligibility. And they knew they could plug him in and play him. And sure enough, uh, he's been a real bright spot along that offensive line. Now, the receivers coach, McClendon, and you mentioned him being a star. Um, explain to our listeners why he's a star in the recruiting front. I mean, you can't say enough about Brian McClendon. It's, he's, he's off the charts on a level that is very difficult for people to comprehend who aren't in a program to see how things develop. So let's start with his background. He brought in Todd Gurley and Nick Chubb to Georgia. So Pretty good recruiter in terms of, you know, <laughs> historically, those are two of the best running backs of the last decade in the NFL. That'll work. Oregon has no history of wide receivers. They just don't. And, and I don't mean to disparage some very, very good college receivers, but there aren't, you know, look across NFL rosters. They have some tight ends. They've got some quarterbacks, you know, plenty of defensive players. Everybody knows Javon Holland in that area. I'm sure he's a, you know, he's a duck and phenomenal player but they don't have a lot of receivers. In fact, I think their best receivers in history were like third round picks, no tradition at receiver and Oregon's biggest recruiting area of weakness over the last decade was receiver. And just like I mentioned with Salave along the D line, 
it happened like, and it was a running like gag for like five years. Oregon would lose their top two wide receiver decommits in the last two weeks before the signing period. They're, hey, we finally, you know, we finally slayed the dragon. We've got two four-star receivers. Oh crap, they flipped. And it was like, oh my gosh, how many different guys? Uh, the year that Willie Taggart left for Florida State, Oregon lost seven, seven wide receivers and hybrid wide receiver tight ends in that one recruiting cycle. And all of them were four-star guys. So that was the peak of like, this can't get any weirder. So they had to solve it. And again, another area where Mario Cristobal gets a tremendous amount of credit when he loses a coach. And there are a lot of, in terms of his head coaching career, he's a younger coach. When, when they lose an offensive coordinator, when they lose a defensive coordinator, sometimes they have to scramble. He has never had to scramble when he goes and there's an opening, he gets a guy and you go, wow, that might be an upgrade. And that guy just left for a head coaching job. And he did it time and time and time again at Oregon. They needed a receiver guy and they needed him late. I mean, after we'd gone through the coaching carousel and all the assistant coaches and he brings in Brian McClendon late and everybody's going, what's this guy going to do? And by the way, the wide receiver coach before him, announced he was leaving while Troy Franklin, the number two receiver in America was on campus at Oregon. So he's on his visit and he's like, Hey, I'm not your coach anymore. Deuces. And it's like, Oh, how, how do we fix this? McClendon not only turns the tide with Troy Franklin and brings him in, he gets Dante Thornton, six foot five, 220 pounds, runs like a four, four, eight, 40. One of the top five receivers in America brings in Isaiah Brevard, an Under Armour All-American, and then brings in Chris Hudson, who's DJ Uyunglele's primary receiver. And not only that, but that helps open up the pipeline in California. And Chris Hudson in his first year has been pretty good. And then you look at how those guys develop. So you go, okay, you bring in talent. What'd you do with them? Well, he didn't have a ton of time, but you go back to Oregon's last uh, last successful game where they played well. And all three of those freshmen, Chris Hudson, Dante Thornton Jr. and Troy Franklin had at least five catches, at least 50 yards and a touchdown each. So not only did he bring in three, four of the top 10 receiver recruits in, in the program's history in one year, uh, starting late, but they were very good immediately as freshmen. So he's identifying the right guys. He's not just star hunting. You know, some guys will star hunt. They're at a program where they know they can get five-star guys. Okay. I'll go after the number two receiver in the country. Does he fit our system? Doesn't matter. Number two receiver in the country. Oh, we didn't get him. Okay. The number three receiver, he went and got guys that complement one another. And suddenly immediately Oregon has this really deep group of young receivers and with no, no track record. So he can't go into living rooms and say like, Hey, you're going to be the next Keenan Allen. You're going to be the next AJ green. You're going to be the next Andre Johnson. You're going to be the next Michael Irvin. Couldn't do that. He's like, Hey, you're going to be the first you. And it worked. And, and to, to cover that for four or five years, just the Oregon never gets receivers. And time and time again, Pac-12 coaches recruiting against Oregon to be like, they don't develop receivers and they lose them, lose them, lose them over and over and over. And Brian McClendon comes in and it's like, don't worry about it. We're going to sign the best Pac-12 receiving core in one recruiting class, maybe in the history of the conference. I mean, it, it was unbelievable. And, and it's not just receivers, as you mentioned, Gurley. I mean, he's gone and gotten guys at other positions and helped out, right? I mean, he's assisted other, other coaches in recruitment. 
Yeah, I think his last stop, even at South Carolina, he brought in like the number two or number three quarterback in the nation. They were like, hey, Mm -hmm. we need a quarterback. Go get one. You know, I'm a running back guy. I'm a receiver guy. But hey, I'll go get one of the top three or four quarterbacks in America. Why not? I mean, that's the kind of guy he is. That's the kind of recruiter he is. Uh, I, I just... I, I knew the reputation, you know, you know, the reputation of a guy coming in. Okay. Todd Gurley, Nick Chubb, but he was at Georgia. I mean, that's a little easier than recruiting, you know, wide receivers at Oregon and no track record of great receivers. And just in, in a matter of weeks, it was just like all these top receivers in the country were like, I'm really interested in Oregon because a coach should be Mac. And you're like, well, there you go. That's why you earned that reputation. Yeah. And, and it, obviously it's important down here in the Southeast where you have, I mean, Alabama and everybody and their mother comes into the state of Florida and just takes the best players a lot of the time. I mean, Ohio State, everybody. Um, I, I'm curious about some of these recruits that they've landed. I know, and I appreciate all the time you're giving me. I want to I want to wrap this up quick because I know you got other things to do. But um, obviously, Cyrus Moss was somebody that Oregon was on. Nigel Lee Kelly. I mean, they're, they're, they're top two guys in their class right now in terms of 247 composite rankings, those two edge rushers. Um, what do you like about both of those guys? I'm sure you studied them pretty well. Yeah, I mean, you know, Kelly is going to compliment Moss beautifully. And you've got you've got these two edge rushers that that are going to wreak havoc. Cyrus Moss is a guy that I believed in real early, uh, top 60 kid in America. And I'm going, this is a five star kid, just the length and, and the athleticism. He's just incredible. He, he was at a camp this summer in Eugene. He does the D line drills, you know, the one on ones and dominates that, of course, because why not? And then just for fun, Oregon was like, hey, go play corner. And they had him line up at corner against, I think he was like the number seven receiver in the country for the junior class. And they have the guy run a go. So Moss should be cooked. He's an edge rusher. (laughs) He goes stride for stride with him, jumps up to pick the ball in the end zone. And I'm talking like a 40 yard, you know, just bomb sprint, jump to pick it. The receiver just tackles him in the back of the end zone because it's going to be an interception. That's how athletic Cyrus Moss is. I mean, he's just unbelievable. And I know, you know, Oregon staff for a while there, it it seemed that, and, and he said the pitch to him was, we haven't seen anyone that's the measurements, the size, the raw athleticism of Kayvon Thibodeau since you. You're going to be the next Kayvon. And then he met Kayvon on campus, and they had similar builds. He, they showed him what Kayvon's body looked like because Kayvon wasn't a weightlifter in high school really at all, mm-hmm. and it's, which is another whole unbelievable story. But Cyrus <laughs> said, I could see how they built his body over the years. So that's how they're going to build me. Coach Feld knows how to build that guy into – arguably, we'll see, arguably the number one pick. And, and Cyrus went, yeah, I, I get this. So you then not only get him, but then you put somebody on the other side that if you double Moss, you have to worry about the other side and another pass rusher, another elite pass rusher that can bend the edge. That's a really exciting thing. And that's something that even Oregon didn't have. And again, if Moss really is even 80% of Thibodeau, and then you have another guy who's supposed to be 75, 80% of Thibodeau on the other end. It's a scary, scary future for quarterbacks in the ACC. Yeah. And, and there's still a couple more guys that they're on that are former Oregon guys, Jaleel Florence, the four-star cornerback who I guess today announced he's not going to be taking any more uh, trips. Uh, he is re- so good. Man. He, he is, is so good. He is so good. And what, what makes him so good for a while there, he was only a three-star recruit mm-hmm. and, uh, we could see the writing on the wall and he was probably coming to Oregon. And I said, this is a kid that's going to be a top hundred prospect in America. He's six two. He hasn't played a ton of football. He's a track guy and his instincts, the way he moves his hips, his feet, 
the way he attacks the football in the air, uh, the fact that he's a top 10, top 12 corner in America with as little football experience as he has is, is unreal. That kid's, I mean, best of luck to Miami. Selfishly, I hope I get to cover that he ends up coming back to Oregon. <laughs> but he's a phenomenal football player. And, and you can see it again, even before he was ranked high, uh, people locally were going, oh my gosh, this kid is going to be off the chart. So really special talent. Uh, and then Dave Ayuli from uh, Puyula, uh, Washington. Uh, just wanted to ask you about him. He, he was interior lineman, but he's a four-star lineman, a guy who I think was committed to Oregon, right? And, and Miami's obviously feeling good about it. Yeah, he's a, he's a guy that could play on either side of the ball, and, and schools have uh, talked to him about O-line. They've talked to him about D-line. I think he's a guy who that size in particular is not super easy to find with his athleticism. I mean, he, he's got a pretty good first step for his size. That's a guy that I think he's going to come in a little raw, uh, mm-hmm. especially coming out of the Northwest. The competition's not super elite here. It's just not. That's the reality. Probably needs to redshirt or at least learn for a year. And they'll find the D-line coach and O-line coach will work with him a little bit. They'll probably fight over him a little bit. Somebody will win. If it's an actual fight, it will be Salavea over Mirabal because there's a pretty big size difference. <laughs> but uh, whoever falls in love with him is going to develop him. And, and that's a pretty exciting thing. And, and, and one thing we really haven't, haven't talked about that, that you touched on a little bit that I wanted to get to, if you don't mind. Sure, absolutely. Um, you mentioned people coming in and poaching talent in Florida. I, I know that's different than Oregon where, you know, Florida is one of the big three with Texas and California. Don't mean to offend your viewers. I'm not our listeners. I'm not going to order it. Florida can be number one. That's totally fine. Locally. I'm supposed to say California, but it's those three. And and everybody knows that everybody knows those are the big three. Oregon's like something like 23rd, but Oregon wasn't doing well with in-state recruiting. They weren't. And the relationships were fractured. And it was something that Mario could have easily said, I can go get talent in California. Who cares? You know, I'm not familiar with these coaches. I don't know how to fix this. And it's for two or three, four stars a year. He immediately fixed the relationships in the state. And I, I, I can't even imagine the work he'll be able to do in Florida where he has those connections already built up. But that's one thing that, that I don't think he gets enough credit for because it doesn't show itself a ton in the Oregon program. It's like, oh, he only had seven Oregon kids in the program. Who cares? He fixed relationships in this state so quickly and so effortlessly with his charisma that it did a complete 180 in a matter of months. I mean, coaches were like, I won't send kids to Oregon. We're like, yeah, my best kids, I'd like him to go to Oregon. I'd like him to play for Mario. What was the secret sauce? What was it? He's just personable. I mean, it's the same secret sauce he's got on the recruiting trail where like, Mm -hmm. you just wonder sometimes like, how does this guy sleep? How does he have time? How does he know his kids' names? How does he know his wife's name? Like he's so busy recruiting all the time. And again, that, that energy, and I, and I mentioned it with Panay Sewell, it's so genuine. Like he genuinely, like, I can't wait to plug you into what I do and then let you wreak havoc in, in my system. He loves it. He really genuinely loves it. And I think that's a wonderful, wonderful characteristic to have in a coach. Uh, coaches get beat down and get worn down, especially by the recruiting process, because you can be jaded by the process. He hasn't been, he loves it. I mean, with a passion, he loves it. And, uh, if he can do even, cause I know he's not going to just build a fence around Florida. It's not, even if he did he still has to fight off Florida and Florida state. So it's, it's not easy, but if, if it's been an issue, it'll get 40, 50% better in the first year. That's just the type of guy he is. Wow. 
uh, yeah, Miami, you know, I don't want to say the relationships were bad, but I did a, um, you know, sort of a confidential, I called 10 high school, high school football coaches around the state. And, you know, Florida is obviously a huge state and, and you're not going to get to every nook and cranny, but for the most part, when Manny Diaz was in charge, it felt like, you know, they respected what he did. I feel like initially every response I've gotten to, to the next confidential has been Mario's awesome. Like they just, yep. they just, they just respect what he does because he's such a hustler at it and does a thorough job, um, you know, with the, not only with the players, but with the high school coaches asking them questions. And that's where, that's where the build for Miami is potentially can happen so quickly is you've got so much talent in your home state. And that's one of Mario's strengths. Again, he'll patch up areas where the region doesn't traditionally have. He's good at that. Assessing his coaching staff. I don't know Florida super well. So if there's a position, the area doesn't now it's Florida. So probably everything. <laughs> but if there's a position that Florida doesn't develop very well, he'll bring in a guy on staff whose job it is to patch up that area. Now we can, you know, we can split hairs about development and 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 there, there are some questions there in terms of in-game decision-making under Mario. You know, sometimes he got a little myopic in his view of, of a particular game and it, and it would get off script and it would unravel quickly. So there are concerns, but this is a recruiting podcast and, 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 or at least this, this, this episode. Yeah. <laughs> and from a recruiting standpoint, it is absolutely impossible to poke holes in what he's doing. I, he did things people that are connected in Oregon said could not be done. And he did it without alienating the Oregon high school coaches. Now, it used to be that people thought you could do one or the other. You can either get a bunch of Oregon kids and, and they'll play with a lot of heart and passion, but they won't be real highly rated. Or you can go get kids from other places and you'll alienate the local coaches, but you'll have a better star rated team. And he somehow did both. And he did both in like six months. I mean, it was just, it, I really am excited for Miami fans. I do think, especially in the state of Florida, if he can build a fence or somewhat of a fence, maybe a few holes in the fence uh, around the state, he's going to have a lot of talent in that program really quickly. And I'd be floored if the 2023 class is in a top five class in America. I'd just be floored. Just based on his track record, Miami should have a top five class in America next year. Absolutely. I, I, I agree with you. And, and there's a lot of positive momentum here in South Florida. There's some obviously some great players that come out of here year in and year out. Maybe they start staying home now. We'll see. Andrew, you're a star, man. I, I really enjoyed having you on uh, the Wide Right uh, podcast today. And uh, I want people to make sure they can follow you on Twitter and read your stuff at The Oregonian. Where, where do they got to go? At Andrew Nimick on Twitter. If you want a whole bunch of Oregon Duck, Oregon State Beavers <laughs> recruiting news, eh, probably not. You probably don't want to listen to the radio show. Fair enough. But uh, yeah, at, at Andrew Nimick, a lot of Pac-12 insights. Uh, and certainly if there's a West region recruit from the Miami area, if, if fans want to ask me about them or have any questions, feel free to hit me up, slide in the DMs or just at me and, and I'll be happy to answer any questions and uh, very excited for Miami fans. I think especially in recruiting, the future is going to be very bright. Thank you, Andrew. You're great, man. A lot of fun. Thanks.